To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. I, I, I'd say I'm an instrumentalist. I, I don't actually believe that nature is mathematics, though a lot of theoretical physicists, uh, at least the ones that I know, um, believe that. Um, I, I would just say it describes reality and it does that suspiciously well, um, you know, as uh, Wigner put it in his essay about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and the natural sciences. And that's still somewhat of a mystery, like why does it work so well? Sabina Hassenfelder is a science communicator on YouTube just like me, but very much not like me. She is an actual honest-to-God theoretical physicist with a PhD in physics, and she's published over 80 papers in science journals covering everything from quantum gravity to particle physics, cosmology, astrophysics, statistical mechanics, and quantum foundations. All of which is to say that if you hear her contradict something that I've said, uh, listen to her. She's an actual expert on this stuff. She also recently published a new book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, which sounds right up my alley, kind of stuff I cover on my channel. So I wanted to get her on here to talk about being a science communicator from the perspective of an actual scientist. And from there, it went to all kinds of places, as you might expect, but I'll let you hear that for yourself. I just wanted to say thanks to Sabina for taking the time for me. really enjoyed getting to meet her, so why don't we just jump into it? Here's my conversation with Sabina Hassenfelder. I've always wanted to ask your your channel says science without the gobbledygook. Hmm. What exactly is gobbledygook in in your mind? Gobbledygook, uh, fancy sounding blah blah. Okay. I took I took this word from a quote which uh, is actually in the beginning of my new book uh, hmm. from uh, what's his name Nicholas Kristof, the guy who writes for the New York Times. Um, that scientists uh, phrase their insights uh, in terms of gobbledygook and then hide it in obscure journals where no one can read it. <laughs> so this is where I took it from. Originally, I wanted to call it sign, uh, science without the spin. Oh, okay. And then I realized, okay, people are going to misunderstand it. <laughs> <laughs> because spin and physics, uh, right, um, means something else. And so I was looking for a replacement for spin. And that's that's what sprang to mind. So it's science without the angular momentum. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm afraid that I understand. Which sounds more like gobbledygook, actually. Um, so was that kind of your original um, motivation for, for like, I mean, obviously, you've been writing books and articles and stuff for a long time. But uh, when you say like science without the spin, it kind of sounds like you wanted to counter some let's let's say bad communication in science that's been going on is that is that accurate yeah so originally i set up this channel to talk about my own research so i was talking about dark matter and uh, quantum gravity phenomenology and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. um but over the years um, i've been doing a lot of freelance writing for quite a variety of outlets uh, and uh, you know you have to write a pitch and you send it to the editor and the editor says either yay or nay 
And I found this a, a very frustrating experience because uh, a lot of times the stuff that I thought was interesting or that just had to be said didn't go past the editor's desk. They were like, no, it's not timely enough, it's not interesting enough, people aren't going to read it, you know, it's not going to sell, basically. That's, that's the major problem. And so I thought, well, then I'm just going to be my own editor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and so um, over the course of time, my channel drifted into this more general, scientific, newsy stuff, like what's going on, what's the stuff that you actually need to know. Mm -hmm. And as you've probably noticed, a lot of the stuff that I talk about um, is fairly general background stuff is not the kind of stuff that you would get published uh, in your typical newspaper magazine or so on. It's just too boring in certain mm. sense, <laughs> you know, and I stand by it. I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll feed you all the numbers and the data and the facts. <laughs> also, like, uh, so you're talking about sort of more mainstream editors that were kind of turning stuff down because I guess it was too nerdy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but not but not so much like the scientific journals that's obviously a different thing oh yeah i, I yeah i was talking yeah, okay. about popular science stuff gotcha. um yeah okay um i'll always have to ask people like you when i have on here that are actual experts in these things because i am not um you know i kind of just fell backwards into science communication because i just had a little bit of a, a nerdy streak to me and I started doing, you know, comedy videos and then I was like, Hey, let's, let's talk about science stuff. And then, you know, wound up working, but, um, but I'm not an actual scientist remotely. And, and yet I talk about this stuff and I'm always really self-conscious about like, Oh, am I doing this right? Am I saying the right things? And, and I always want to ask people who come on here who are actual, you know, scientists and PhDs and stuff. It's like, am I okay doing this? <laughs> you, you're, okay doing, you're, doing, doing you're doing a very good job uh, actually i think there's wow. you know it, it's probably easier if you come from it that way so in my case it was exactly the opposite you know i started from science communication and fell backwards into comedy stuff <laughs> which is far worse <laughs> um uh, but no you, you're doing a pretty good job and uh, one of the biggest problems that i see uh with uh people who have a science background you know they've, they've made a master's degree or they've made a phd and they, they did some research and then they went into science writing is that they have a hard time communicating with normal people <laughs> let me put sure, it this yeah. way it yeah. just becomes too technical they, they have gotten so used to to all those technical terms uh, mm. that they they don't really understand how much effort it takes to keep track of it and, and that's that's a trap which you don't fall into and I, I think it's one of the reasons that people like your channel it's like you actually get it across <laughs> what you want to say well i i've i've made the argument many times that if i can get myself to understand a topic that i can get somebody else to understand it because i'm not an expert on that kind of thing so if i if i pat myself on the back for anything i guess it's that but but i always still worry that like um the last thing that I want to do is put more misinformation into the world, you know, and, and get something wrong. Um, I would sort of, uh, I don't know, calm myself down by being like, you know what, you're just kind of getting people interested in the subject and then they can go and look into it further. And if you get something wrong, then they'll find that out later on or something like that. But I still don't like the idea of getting things wrong and I get a little self-conscious about it. But. <laughs> Oh, well, I have exactly the same problem. It's like my nightmare. You know, one, one of those days I'm going to get something important really, really wrong. <laughs> and so far, it's, it's been some minor things. Um, but yeah. 
I lose mm. sleep over this. <laughs> that means we're good people, right? Well, that's what I like to think. Um, we, because we don't want to, you know, contribute to that. Yeah, but I, I mean, I also have to say, like, that YouTube is like, it makes it pretty hard um, to to get things right because you can't correct it. Like if if yeah. you write um, and you put it online, you can just, you know, change it and then put a correction at the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, but in YouTube, it's like you either take it down or you stick with it. <laughs> I miss the annotations. They used to have that. You could put a little like box up on screen to say like, oh, I was wrong here or something. You can correct yourself. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> Exactly. I, I've been you know, leaving comments on the creator channel about this for a couple of uh, months, uh, mm -hmm. saying that I want them back. I want them back. Because it's so frustrating, you know, if I get something wrong, and there'll be a thousand people pointing out, you know, it was something like recently, I said, microsecond when I should have said millisecond or something. Mm -hmm. and, and then you put it in the info below the video. But of course, no one looks there. Yeah. So I, I have to reply to all the comments saying, I'm so sorry I got this wrong. Yes, you're you're completely right. It should have been millisecond. I'm so dumb, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm like, you know, if I could just put the thing directly on the video saying, yeah. you know, should have been millisecond. I'm so sorry. It, 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 it would just make things easier. Yeah. Sometimes when you're lucky, you can catch it before it goes out and you can put a little text on screen in the editing, but I, it's usually way after and isn't that like the worst because i have a video that just came out today it's always the worst feeling when you like go into the comments and like the very first like three comments are like correcting you on something you got wrong it's just like oh god seriously because it's just like that creeping sense of like do i need to take this down is it that bad but i usually don't <laughs> trust me i know the feeling <laughs> that's i guess it's a universal thing for people who do what we do um so uh, I'd like to hear more about your background, because I know you, um, uh, well, you just said something a second ago about like uh, quantum gravity and uh, is, is that, is that, what, what did you study? Like, what, where did you, what did you focus on when you were an up and So I, I originally, I studied mathematics, but then I, uh, so the, the, the math department uh, was basically broke. Uh, and they couldn't me yeah. offer me a job. And so um, they said, well, why don't you walk over to the physics building and ask them because they normally have use for mathematicians. And that's what I did. And they gave me a job and they also gave me a desk and they gave me a topic for my master's thesis <laughs> and, uh, before I knew I had a PhD in physics. Um, okay. So so I came kind of in th through the back door and it follows me around. You know, I, I've always felt that I don't really fit into um, the, the physics mindset. I came more from this mathematician perspective. I wanted to know what you can do with mathematics. What does it tell us about nature? How much can it tell us? Um, so, you know, after, after a, a long, long time of erring around through various parts of the foundations of physics, I've now settled on an institute for mathematical philosophy, which, you know, I finally think maybe I'm actually getting where I wanted to be in the first place. Okay, that's interesting. Um, can you talk further about that? Like what, 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 when you, when you kind of tie mathematics into like the physical universe, like, I guess when I start talking about quantum stuff and they they say that, you know, everything is, is probability states and stuff, and it's like, that's just math. Like, it just kind of all becomes math at some point. Or if I was British, I would say maths, but uh, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. 
I mean, is, I mean, yes. Is, is that kind um, of where you're, where you're coming from in, in terms of like how, how math controls physics and stuff? Yeah, so um, I, I, I'd say I'm an instrumentalist. I, I don't actually believe that nature is mathematics, though a lot of theoretical physicists, uh, at least the ones that I know, um, believe that. Um, I, I would just say it describes reality, and it does that suspiciously well, um, you know, as uh, Wigner put it in his essay about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and the natural sciences and that's still somewhat of a mystery like why does it work so well mm-hmm. um so that certainly intrigues me um but i i it's also like um i, I always have this question like why is it why is it, why is it this mathematics and why not some other mathematics mm-hmm. like th- there's a lot of mathematics that we do not use to describe the universe uh why not <laughs> Right? Why this particular piece of it? And uh, what can we learn from the mathematics that we have already found? Uh, and also, if you look at the mathematics that we currently use, what's wrong with it? Like in particular, when it comes to quantum mechanics. So that's actually, you know, what, what my research at the moment is about, is trying to figure out just exactly why do we have problems with quantum mechanics? And, um, you know, I look at it very much from the mathematical perspective. I'll jump back to Sabina in just a second, but first let me tell you about today's sponsor, NordVPN. So look, we're a lot more mobile these days, which is cool because you can work from anywhere, which I guess also means that you can never get away from work, which kind of sucks, but this is the world today. What can you do? Well, one thing you can do is protect yourself while you're in unfamiliar Wi-Fi networks with a VPN like NordVPN. Uh, NordVPN kind of lets you operate on stealth mode around hackers and other dirty Wi-Fi shenanigans because it basically fools the network into thinking you're somewhere else. NordVPN lets you pick a region of the world, which means you can get access to things that you wouldn't normally be able to access. Like, say you're on Netflix and you can't find your favorite show on it. It might just not be available in your region, but change your region to somewhere else, that show might magically pop up. It's a little sneaky, but you know, hey, it works. But that's just the start. NordVPN also offers threat protection, so if you accidentally click on malware links, which are all over the web, by the way, uh, it'll put a stop to that before it even gets a chance to do anything. And then you've got the dark web monitor. It'll actually let you know if your passwords or credentials get leaked anywhere um, on the dark web, so you can keep track of that. The point is you can feel safe and protected when you've got NordVPN. Each account protects up to six devices, and they've got 24-hour support. So if you're new to VPNs, maybe feel a little intimidated by it all, they're there to make it comfortable and make it easy for you to do. Uh, just go to nordvpn.com cwj, like for conversations with Joe, cwj, to get started. And if you sign up for their two-year plan, you'll get four months free, and that's at all levels, even their deluxe complete level. So it's not just the, the cheap stuff that you get for free. Everything. Free, four months. Plus, they've got 30-day money-back guarantee, so you've really got nothing to lose. If you've never tried one before, you can give it a try. And if you don't like it, you can cancel. You're out of nothing. So trust me, this isn't something you want to learn about the hard way. Go do it. Protect yourself. That's nordvpn.com cwj. It's good for you. Helps you feel safe, and it helps support this podcast. Thanks to NordVPN for supporting this episode. And now, back to Sabina. Yeah, yeah. Well, is that, that, that age-old question... And I would love to hear your uh, opinion on this. Is 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 math invented or discovered? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I would say it, it's kind of it's kind of both, uh, right? So uh, we we discover some part of it, but we invent the way that we deal with it. So I know that's <laughs> kind of a lame 
it's kind of a lame answer, but I, I don't <laughs> I, I don't feel strongly about it one way or the other. As I said, you know, I'm I'm very much the instrumentalist. I'm like, uh, okay, it's there, it's useful, then let's use it. Like, who cares if it's mm -hmm. discovered or invented? <laughs> okay, I got you. Um, I have to imagine that you get a lot of emails and and uh, messages on social media from people that want to run their grand theory of everything by you. Yeah. Does that happen a lot? <laughs> I, may, I, may, I, I, made a, I wrote a song about this. I don't know if you've seen this. I wrote a song about this, <laughs> about people sending me their theories of everything. <laughs> I just literally 10 minutes ago discovered that you had a, a channel where you did music. I didn't know this until just a minute ago. Yeah, I, I get this a lot. Um, and I'm always sorry. Like, I, I'm honestly sorry that I don't have time to uh, help those people. I just can't. It's just, you know, I wouldn't do anything else. And I, I'm saying this because um, those are people who are like really, really enthusiastic about physics. Yeah, they, they spend a lot of time on it. And they're, they're really trying to understand it. And most of the time, uh, their problem is that there is there's a big gap between popular science and textbook science, mm -hmm. and it's it's really difficult to to bridge this gap, and um, it, it adds on top of this that you have a lot of science communicators who try really hard making things sound simple. And they're actually good at it. <laughs> so people get away with the impression it's actually really simple. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then, you know, it, it isn't quite as simple as they make it sound on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> actually, what I'm, I, I always am very careful to be like, I don't understand this. I understand it only at this level. Here are my resources and my sources or whatever. Go look. But, um, I try not to say that things are simple because it's it's mostly over my head. I just kind of get it across the best I can. But anyway, um, but I get what you're saying though. Like I I get people who send me um, I would call it theories of everything or or you know all kinds of stuff. But um, and they they're very clearly really into it and have spent a lot of time on it and and it's very important to them. But um. I'm just always like, I'm not the guy to confirm or deny this. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert in it. Um, so I imagine as somebody who is actually an expert, you might feel a little bit more um, obligation maybe to, to do it. Just not having. Yeah, partly though. I mean, I, I have to say like, I've never actually worked on theories of everything. Like I'm not even particularly interested in it. I literally wrote a whole book explaining why I think there isn't such a thing <laughs> as the theory of everything. So yeah. I'm always a little bit surprised. Why do people send me this stuff? And I think the answer is that they have no idea what my research is on in the first place. And they didn't read my books either. They just, I don't know, I, I think they just send it to me because, you know, my name's out there somehow. Yeah. And then I've got something to do with physics. So certainly I must know something about theories of everything. <laughs> I, I think people just want validation. For their for their ideas to feel like yeah I, I think it's actually more complicated because a lot of those people um they have no one to talk to mm. you know people who who can understand the whole theory of everything business uh you don't find them everywhere mm. so um you know most of the time they their friends have no idea what they're going on about their their family is sick of hearing it and then there are some <laughs> some online 
forums and you know groups and so on uh, but most of the people you find in those groups have no idea what they're talking about either um so where do you yeah. go you can enroll and in some university thing but that's going to take like a decade or something until you get somewhere <laughs> and so what do you do well you look up some email addresses online and then you send around your stuff you know and i, I yeah. can kind of understand this but um you know I, i'm not the person who's going to solve the problem basically so you mentioned like the your your current uh research the stuff you're working on right now like is there is there anything on that that you'd want to talk about or is, is it all kind of public um on your on your blog and stuff uh on my blog actually i'm, I'm not doing anything on my blog okay. i just don't have the time you know it's kind of ironic because personally i prefer writing over doing videos <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but in reality i don't have any time left to write yeah uh but yeah i've, I've written a bunch of papers um which you find on the archive uh, about quantum mechanics stuff and I have a couple of more coming up which hopefully I'll get out this year if things go well mm -hmm. uh, so so we'll see well I'm curious how you how you separate your time between like your actual research and and the and the and the YouTubing stuff like how how um I guess how how big a part of your workflow is is the YouTube and the and the actual the the research that you're doing um it, it kind of fluctuates wildly um so <laughs> at the moment uh i actually don't get paid for my research which is why i've been focusing on the science news stuff mm -hmm. um but i hope that in a couple of months i'll go back to doing research uh and then i'm i've i've always been the person who <laughs> who has phases where I just oh, have yeah. to do research. So that there'll be a couple of months where I'm like really working really, really hard, like basically day and night thinking about this one thing because I have to sort it out. Mm -hmm. And then I'd write like three papers in a week. This is how my brain works. Mm -hmm. And then for a couple of months, I'll be so exhausted. The only thing I'll be doing is writing scripts about how terrible quantum mechanics is or something. But, <laughs> um, so, so it's kind of so it, it's difficult to answer uh, for me the question. Yeah, I, I understand the phases thing. I do that myself. I'm like, uh, I'm always falling off of some wagon or, or developing a habit and then like getting off that habit or something or, or falling down a rabbit hole of some specific topic. And then next thing you know, I've got like four videos on the Victorian age or something, you know? Um, do you find, do you, do you feel like just some YouTube shop talk, but um, are there certain specific topics that you feel like you kind of have to cover? Are there, are there things that you want to step outside of, of your normal sort of content and, and just talk about things that are interesting to you, but you feel like you can't, or maybe the videos don't perform as well. I know that's the case for me. There's, there's a lot of topics that I would love to talk about, but I know that like, it's just not, it's just not my channel, you know? Yeah, I, I totally know what you're talking about. So um, it, it's one of the reasons why I started doing these weekly science news mm -hmm. um, is because uh, we have a pretty long lead time for the the normal Saturday v videos. It's something like four to five weeks. And if there's mm -hmm. some, some headline coming up, I get a gazillion questions for comments from people on social media mm -hmm. and then waiting five weeks to comment on the thing <laughs> doesn't make any sense because by this time people have forgotten what the headline was in the first place. 
Um, so one of the things that I do with the, with the science news is to comment on some recent headlines. Like there was like a, a couple of days ago, I don't know if you saw this, like there was this big headline that um, actually black holes are dark energy. <laughs> So, so I'll, I'll be talking about this uh, on Wednesday uh, because I, I kind of feel like I have to talk about it. Like people expect me to say something about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, there, there are a lot of topics that I don't talk about because I'm afraid um, they're just going glock, glock, glock <laughs> down to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> and uh, in my case, it's mostly any, anything related to medicine. Like I'm mm -hmm. super interested in medicine. I read a lot of, uh, you know, um, especially the the research stuff like uh, stem cell therapies and, 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 and so on. But I'm really afraid to talk about it because I think people aren't, they'll not buy it. Like they know I'm not a doctor. I have no background in medicine and it doesn't really matter how much effort I put into making sure that it's, it's all right. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid it, it, it'll just not fly with my audience and then not on YouTube in general. Um, yes, so every once in a while I've tried to talk about something that's a little bit outside my normal stuff, just mm -hmm. to to test the ground, <laughs> like, <laughs> as go. <laughs> every once in a while, you know, I can afford putting out a video which doesn't fly. Um, and so um, this is one of the things that I've been doing. I, I also talked um, a couple of weeks ago about uh, social media. Yeah, social media, good or bad. And that actually went quite well, you know, not not great, but okay, I'd say. So I'd probably be talking a little bit more about sociology. I also want to talk a little bit more about psychology. So which are all topics that I'm really interested in. I know I say this a lot, like things that I'm interested in. It's a really long <laughs> list. Well, um, I didn't catch that video. What was your what was your determination at the end of it? Uh, is social media good or bad? Well, yeah. to 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 make uh, a short video even shorter <laughs> uh, depends on the platform and uh, exactly how you use it. Um, so it, it's good for some things. It's it's bad for some things. Um, and it, it's also quite quite interesting, which I didn't know before. It depends very strongly on the country. Like uh, you know, the thing that people talk about a lot with uh, social media use increasing polarization like political polarization uh seems to be a very american thing people have actually looked at this uh in a lot of other countries and in other countries it went the other way so hmm. polarization actually decreased so who knew <laughs> so uh, sociology is, is really difficult you know in, in one country it might go the one way and other countries might go the other way yeah i mean do, do we have details on why that is or are, are people i mean the algorithms are the same in the other countries i would assume right yeah so uh, on this particular thing uh no um so it's it, a lot of this is really still su subject of research mm -hmm. as they say sure, yeah yeah but I mean, so so one interesting thing that I learned from it um, is it's actually quite encouraging. Um, is that uh, just reminding people um, to think about whether to share an item or not share an item can actually decrease mm -hmm. the amount of misinformation that's being spread. And, uh, you know, this makes sense even from my personal experience that sometimes, you know, I, I might share stuff because I think it's, funny or entertaining uh, uh, and, and not even think about whether that's even correct. And, and so, so just stepping back a little bit and take a few seconds to think about, is this plausible that it might be correct? 
mm -hmm. <laughs> actually makes the difference. Yeah, um, I think what was her name? Uh, Jennifer Haugen, I believe her name was. She was the Facebook whistleblower that happened like a year or so ago. Um, I saw her in, in an interview, and she was talking about some some pretty. Um, What's the right word I'm looking for here? Some some ways to slow the spread of misinformation on social media and some of them that they were playing around with that don't involve, you know, reworking the algorithm and everything. But she was she was saying one of their ideas um, that never got implemented, and I think this is a pretty good one, was that um, an article could only be shared like two times before you have to literally cut and paste the URL into um, a Facebook status. So, so like if, if, if one person shared it and then a friend of yours shared it and then they shared it with you, if you wanted to share it, you would have to literally like open up the page, copy paste and go through those extra steps uh, to share it. And she was like, that alone helps to cut down on, on the spread of misinformation because it's just that one tiny little extra step you got to take. And that might be enough to make you just go, do I really want to share this? Eh, you know, exactly, and, and yeah. not. I thought that was interesting. Just little things like that, that could, you know that could make things better. Um, social media is really interesting. And and we have a whole generation now growing up with it and they've, they've been shaped by it in, in interesting ways. And and I'm now of the generation that's like, oh, these young kids, they're so <laughs> weird and I don't get their humor and everything. And and I'm uh, I'm trying really hard to not turn into those people that like, oh, my generation is the best because we grew up without the internet or something. But um, I find it interesting that people who are actually being brought up with social media, how that kind of changes their perception of the world and how they interact with people and stuff. It's, it's definitely a sea change feels like. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting. So, um, I, I have two kids, uh, they're now 12 years old. Um, so they're twins. <laughs> people always get confused about this. <laughs> so, um, and um, they learn a lot of the stuff about social media and how to interact with other people and um, bullying and so on in school. And, you know, they, they actually do get like social media education and Internet education, how to, you know, fact check, check the stuff that they read, like even at that age. I find it quite remarkable, actually. Oh, so, so they actually uh, teach that I, in school? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I don't think they do. Uh, I, 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 I didn't know this either, but um, yeah. So of course, I don't know how it, how it is in. in uh, but I've I've uh, read that they also do it in Finland and Sweden and presumably some other countries as uh, as well. And so I kind of feel they actually, you know, they do get a pretty good start. Actually, mm. pr probably better than we did because we sure, had to yeah. make we had to make all the mistakes ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I always wonder that, like, is, are they more savvy with the social media because they grew up with it and they kind of understand that, you know, some of it's BS and some of it's real? Um, or is it one of those like fish in the water things? Like they're just so in it that they don't know any different. Uh, me not having any kids and I'm not really around any kids. I, I, I just kind of have to sit here and wonder, but um, it's really encouraging to hear that they are actually having like taking classes in school about it's almost like media literacy or or social media criticism or whatever um i don't again i could be wrong but i don't think that they actually do that here and it feels like that's a really important thing to teach kids these days yeah i think there's just 
generally more awareness of what it can do to you that it might be bad um mm -hmm. and so like i mean there's that's the question like does it actually <laughs> count away the bad thing sufficiently much if you see what i mean uh, -huh. uh just because people have been warned doesn't mean they'll actually be able to avoid the problem uh but at least uh, they're not completely running into it blindly so our our kids actually at the moment uh, do not use social media they, they don't yet have their own phones and stuff but i, I guess it'll come in the next couple of years and then we'll, we'll see yeah yeah um do you have any opinions on where things are gonna go next because i was just thinking like um the, the your kids and and kids of that generation something is going to change probably in the next 10 or 15 years it's going to that's going to throw them for a loop you know and and they're going to be trying to figure out as as older people as they get older and and uh i don't know it just got me thinking like with all the the ai stuff that's going on right now with the chat gpt and all that and um uh, I haven't heard much talk about the metaverse lately. It seems like it kind of had a, a, a moment there and then everybody was like, oh, this isn't anything. And then it just kind of like went away. VR seems to do that. It kind of like seems to just come up every once in a while. But I wonder if someday if like, say they get smart glasses figured out or something, maybe they could actually make something like that work. Um, I don't know, what, what, what do, you, do you have thoughts on that? Like where things are gonna go next? Well, so I don't know about 15 years, but I mean, at the moment, it's obviously it's like uh, AI um, it is the thing like for images, uh, videos, we're going to see this much more on YouTube, uh, you know, people would just be trying it out. At, at the moment, it's just too difficult. But when it when it becomes really mainstream, and everyone can use it, we're going to see it all over the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's going to make some, some interesting changes, because I think it'll it'll put a bonus on um authenticity if that's what yeah. i what I, what i can call it you know sure. if it becomes so easy to fake something um i i think it'll it'll convince people that you know a real human being is worth something mm -hmm. Um, so, so this is the one thing that, that I expect, but in, in the fairly, uh, near future, and there's been a lot of talk about what, what AI chatbots are going to do, um, to writing, but I actually think what, what's, what the, the next big thing that's around the horizon are, uh, robots, um, because that's been kind of building up, you know, uh, robots are now, um, good enough to actually walk around and with artificial intelligence, they're, they're, you know, safe enough let me put it this way <laughs> um but at the moment they're just too expensive like they're just you know one of one of type basically um but it so this research is developing so rapidly that i think like in the next five years or something we're going to see like this real boom of con consumer or oriented products uh, mm. all kinds of robots that you, you'll be able to buy and uh, you know at the uh, at the beginning they'll, they'll still be expensive but um it, it costs will go down uh, rapidly and then we'll have to see how 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 do we integrate robots in our in our daily life yeah. and then the, the thing with the metaverse i think it's one of those ideas that where the time hasn't quite come but but it'll come eventually. I think it's really just yeah. a matter of time. Eventually we'll get there. You know, we'll, we'll do everything in 3D with some fancy glasses and uh, whatnot. 
Yeah, like AR, it's augmented reality and stuff. Yes, yes, ads everywhere on all houses and then on the streets and yeah. the clouds everywhere yeah. will be ads. <laughs> and and they're perfectly like tailored to you and they're already listening in on our phones. I just know it. <laughs> um, your take on robots is really interesting though. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I did a video, I don't know, six months ago or something like that. Uh, you know, when Tesla started saying they were going to have their, their Tesla bot or whatever, um, it got a lot of, you know, laughter and stuff. And they even did a, an update fairly recently where they were kind of showing off where they've gotten so far. I was actually pretty impressed with it. But um, my whole thing is always like, the idea of humanoid robots didn't make much sense to me. It felt very human centric to be like, oh, well, the perfect form must be looking like us, right? Um but then I did that video and it was specifically about like humanoid robots. What's the point and everything. And I don't know, I kind of came around on that a little bit. It was one of those videos that I guess my opinion changed a bit as I was researching it. Cause I, I started to, you know, the point was that, um, you know, we live in a world that is built for humans. So you want a robot that can function in that world, you know? And, um, and I started thinking about like, you know, I've got two dogs and every time we travel, we've got to board them or we've got to find some place to, or somebody to come house sit or something. But I was like, if you had a robot that could just plug itself into the wall when it's not being used, but then, you know, every other hour or so let the dogs outside and, and maybe it can fetch the mail and just kind of like take care of just general stuff around the house to make sure that it's, you know, functioning. Like that would be, that would be cool. Like I, that that's useful. You know, I could totally see that being a thing. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same change of mind, you know, thinking like, this is like really human centric. Why don't we build something smarter? Like if we can do it any way that we want, why make yeah. it a human? The giant octopus, but then I was like, come on. Right. And I was thinking, what, what would I want to have a robot for? Well, to, you know, take stuff out of the dishwasher and do the laundry. So the stupid thing would have to actually walk down into the basement. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. How do you do this? Well, you give it legs, right? Yeah. <laughs> right so so suddenly you have something that looks pretty much like a human mm -hmm. and you always see those videos from boston dynamics where atlas is like doing flips and stuff i can see it just like doing flips down the stairs performing yeah, <laughs> yeah. only the camera's on it um <clears throat> well um i wanted to there's a couple of questions i wanted to ask while, while, while i had you um being that somebody who is all about getting rid of the gobbledygook and uh you know, kind of straightening people up on the on the science stuff. Are there any prevailing science myths that are just like zombie myths? They just keep coming up no matter how many times you debunk them. You just kind of keep getting fed these questions or or people keep saying and you're just like, ah, this isn't right. Are there are there any that stand out to you? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the stuff that I've already talked about, like uh, since forever. Um, I, Partly it's stuff that I actually work on, like there, you almost certainly know that we have this big controversy, uh, is it dark matter or is it a modification of gravity? And mm -hmm. there are just some myths that people bring up over and over again, uh, like for example, that um, modified gravity has been ruled out by the bullet cluster. And I've been on this like a gazillion times, basically, and people still bring it up. I have the impression that now it's it's gone down a little bit. Um, so maybe I had something to do with it, or maybe people just <laughs> forgotten about it. Um, but yeah, so so the thing is that if you actually look at the literature, um, it 
no one claims this. Like this is like a, a popular science myth that mm -hmm. actually through the back door has also infiltrated physics. So this is really bizarre. So I've heard people, you know, referring to this in their talks, like physicists, astrophysicists, and then you go and, and, and ask them like, where's the reference? And, and, and they're like, well, but everyone knows this basically. And I, where do they know it from? Mm, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so this is one of those examples. And, and then there has been this weird confusion um, but also this, this seems to have um, um, mostly disappeared uh, about quantum computing, where I, I actually don't know if you can remember this, but they had this weird distinction between the logical qubits and the physical qubits. And you mm -hmm. actually still find this in the literature, but not so surprisingly, a lot of people got really confused about this and didn't know what the difference is. So the, the logical qubits are basically your perfect things that you can do operations with and then they they'd quote the number of logical qubits that you need um to do a calculation that's commercially relevant and it, typically that would be something like 150 or something uh and uh then when people started putting out their first quantum computers with like 25 50 uh, and then 60 and so people got really excited because we're getting close to this 150 so, so quickly. Uh, and, and, and then I had to explain to them, well, actually, you know, those are physical qubits and the estimates for the number of physical qubits that you need to get to the commercially relevant uh, applications is more like a million. Oh, wow. and, and when I said this the first couple of times, people wouldn't believe it. You know, I, I'd actually, this is why I have a standard go-to reference uh, from an NAS report from 2018, where they actually have a table where they have those numbers. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure it's actually correct. Uh, and um, so what's happened in the, in the past couple of years is that people have just stopped talking about those logical qubits. So okay. um, at least, at least I've, I haven't heard it for a while. Um, so, those so are the ones that really matter. The, well, the, depends on how you see it. Like, um, <laughs> like the, the logical qubits, if, if you want to know what it takes to actually do a calculation, um, like the, in the maths, then the logical qubits are the ones that um, you, you need to think about. Um, but in reality, like in, in the real world out there, it's the physical qubits are the things that you need to build. And those have errors and you need to take into account those errors. This is why the number of physical qubits uh, is so, so much larger than the number of logical qubits. So okay. um, it's one of those things. And then there was a related thing that people uh, got confused about is um, that you need uh, quantum cryptography to be safe from hacking by quantum computers. Uh, which is not correct okay. because there are actually uh, classical non-quantum cryptography schemes that, at least for all we currently know, can't be cracked by a quantum computer. It's somewhat confusingly called post-quantum cryptography. And uh, yeah, they, they have partly renamed this now to quantum safe cryptography, which is still quite of a mouthful, but uh, a little bit more descriptive. Yeah. So there, there have been a couple of those things where uh, where I've tried to weed things out, and I think I've kind of been semi-successful. Oh, the thing with the nuclear fusion gain was another one oh, of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of headlines around that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs>
So, but, um, I, but I think it's actually, you know, it's worked to some extent, at least the people who care about it, like who, who really interested in, in nuclear fusion, they, they know by now that the numbers that you typically see quoted in those press releases, uh, releases don't uh, capture the entire amount of energy that was actually used uh, for the reaction. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, how do you feel about that, though? I mean, is it, is it still a big step in, in your mind? um to, to to get to uh nuclear fusion to be commercially relevant yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's quite some i'm actually working on on another video about nuclear fusion startups mm -hmm. um so there's a, a lot of good stuff happening there but yeah. um as, as so often i think that people are a little bit too over optimistic you know i'm, I'm pretty sure eventually we'll get there it's uh, you know we know that it works like mm. in principle you know we we have all the theories sorted out and, and it works the way that we expected it's just an engineering problem <laughs> but a big one <laughs> yeah I, I always whenever i look at things like that i'm always like there's so much money going into it and there's so much money to be made from it that it's <sighs> it's almost like the most pro capitalism thing i can say Th because there's there's money to be made it's going to happen you're going to see innovation like that's that's the, the capitalism part of my brain speaking up but um that's always been how i feel about it. like there, there's so much money to be made from it that we're going to get there someday because there's just the incentive is just so high well actually i think that the 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 money question is actually more difficult than the science question you know, it's it's one thing for me to say, scientifically, they'll get it done eventually, you know, to get more, mm -hmm. more energy out in total than they put in. Whether it'll make commercial sense, that's a much more difficult question. It's further down um, the road. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that depends on so many other things, like it depends on what, what what's going to happen with all the uh, the cost for the peripherals, like all the equipment that they actually need, where's that going to go? And well, what happens with the rest of the world economy? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so on. So uh, God knows. So um, yeah, it, it might just be, maybe, I don't know, in 20 years or something, they'll, they'll, they'll figure out how to actually get energy out of the thing, but then they'll decide it's so ridiculously expensive that it doesn't make any sense. Especially when you look at how cheap um renewables and um battery storage has gotten just in the last 20 years if you project that forward another 20 years it's it's probably gonna be even less expensive and i, I keep hearing that about like uh normal nuclear normal fission nuclear reactors right now it's like they're they're just so expensive to build that economically it just makes more sense to do solar and wind um so that's that's something I've been hearing anyway. Yeah, um, that's right. I've, I've heard this too. It's it's only partly correct because it's it certainly, you know, some countries have managed to build those things <laughs> for less cost. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's actually, you know, it's, it's a fairly complicated story. Just why did nuclear fission plants end up being so ridiculously uh, expensive? It mm -hmm. didn't have to be that way. And uh, now with the, there's this big push to these modular reactors yeah, um, yeah. and um, maybe that'll turn things around. But uh, at the moment, it doesn't look like it. Actually, they're, they're even more expensive, but mm. who knows? I guess we'll see. 
no, but I, I did a video on the small modular reactors a while back, and I keep God, there's there's been one on my list for a while about like fourth generation nuclear. Um, it just kills me that, and I, I may be wrong about this, but it, that um, most of the nuclear reactors that are running right now are are based off of like 1960s technology. They're just they're just so old, and they like the technology has come a long way. It just hasn't really become commercially you know viable yet for some reason exactly yeah i i did a, i did a video about uh nuclear waste mm, yeah. and uh yeah the, the this i talk about this uh, a little bit like there are so many options what you could could be doing with the so-called waste which for the most part you can still get energy out or you can recycle right. it or whatever yeah. but we just don't use the technology yeah you know we, we know how it works we could do it we're just not doing it mm-hmm isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to to live in Germany and be pro nuclear. <laughs> oh. But actually, I I you know, it's like literally over there, you know, ten kilometers or something. Uh, there's a nuclear power plant, but it, it's it's been decommissioned. It's no longer running. Oh, okay. That, that's Germany in a nutshell. Yeah, Germany kind of went back toward coal, didn't they? That's right, because Germany does have a lot of coal and it's really yeah. cheap and it's just sitting yeah. there and you can dig it up and you can burn it. And that's very convenient if it wasn't for this little issue with the carbon dioxide. Yeah, a little thing. <laughs> um, we're getting kind of close to the end here, but I wanted to, <clears throat> I was talking about the robot video earlier and how it kind of changed my mind as I was researching it. Are there any videos that you've done that, that kind of were the same thing? Like you had a certain idea going in and then the more you looked at it, it was like, oh, this is actually something different. And it kind of changed the way you saw things. Yeah, I had one of those recently um, where I was talking about hydrogen. Like I used to think hydrogen, it sounds, it sounds really good, right? Is it clean? Um, you can use it to replace fossil fuels. You carry it around, you put it in your tank. Uh, hydrogen cars already exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I looked more at the engineering part of things and I was like, it's much more complicated than they make it sound. <laughs> and hydrogen is really nasty stuff. Um, so now I've switched to now at the moment, I'm a big fan of synthetic, um, um, synthetic fuels. Okay. Um, because I feel like the infrastructure is already there. So that's like the obvious thing to do. You have to take renewable energies, you make your synthetic fuel, you, you put it into your car the same way that you previously did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't really looked into it. So God, God knows what I'll find. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll change you again. It's like, oh, God, it's hydrogen all over again. Um, <laughs> so the synthetic fuels would be like stuff that's where they've uh, maybe pulled it from the carbon in the air or something. And it's, it's, uh, it's almost carbon neutral instead of carbon. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea, positive. right? You, you, you take it out of the, uh, uh, invest energy to make your fossil fuel. It could be any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you burn it and you release, um, the carbon dioxide again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you going down? I always like to ask this to people. Are you going down any rabbit holes right now? Are there any are there any um, subjects that you've suddenly gotten into or videos on YouTube or books that you've read that just has, has sparked a curiosity about something that maybe you don't normally get to talk about? What are you into <laughs> like, that you don't normally get to talk about? Um, that I normally don't get to talk about. Um, 
Well, so so um, I, I've recently been thinking a lot about the, the sociology part of social media, which mm -hmm. uh, it started with this first video that I've been doing. Uh, and so now I have another video coming up about uh, collective stupidity, like the, <laughs> the the opposite of collective intelligence. Uh, uh -huh. So I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of reading uh, about why sometimes groups of people are intelligent, come to good decisions, and sometimes they don't. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I found some interesting stuff, but you have to wait for the video <laughs> to figure out what. No uh, and, 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 and this is kind of, you know, once you look into this, there's more, there's more. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so I'm still reading papers about the uh, sociology of groups, and um, also the psychology. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about those, those weird relationships that we're having with our audience, it's, it's mm -hmm. called a parasocial relationship yeah. um, that kind of screws with our, um, you know, inborn way of having relationships. It's kind of unnatural if you think mm -hmm. about it. And uh, there are lots of things that are going wrong in this. And so I found this very interesting, you know, just also on a personal level, you know, trying to understand uh, what's, what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading a book right now. It's called The Attention Merchants. Mm -hmm. And um the, the reason I was reading it is because I I've 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 developed this theory about the world that, you know, we we're living in an attention economy. I didn't make this up, other people have, but um, but that, you know, attention is the current major currency of the world, you know, and, and that that explains a lot of really bad behavior that you see, especially on the part of public figures and stuff. And um, I feel like that explains cancel culture a little bit that, you know, it's not really so much about everybody really being righteously indignant about something. It's just, it's just piling on in a mob mentality kind of thing, you know, and scoring fake internet points and whatnot. Uh, it's become a subject I've become uh, really interested in. So this book so far has been, um, I'm only about maybe a third of the way through it right now, but it's about the whole history of advertising and propaganda and how it was first kind of used in World War One and stuff like that, and actually a little bit before that. But um, so it's, which is also kind of interesting because I worked in advertising for 15 years. I was a, I was a copywriter uh, for a long time. So the history of advertising and like the, the theories behind like social, what do they call it? Social um, engineering. That's what it was. I think it was like consumer demand engineering or something like that was the term that mm -hmm. they used. Anyway, it, it's all very interesting to me, and especially when they get into the propaganda of like, you know, the Nazis and stuff like that and how they, you know, kind of used what had been learned in the advertising world and stuff. And anyway, um, it's it's a very interesting subject is what I'm saying. So uh, I'm glad to hear you're on the case. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been thinking for, for from this perspective of social social media about this uh, advertisement uh, part, because uh, you know if you, you you put enough money into advertisement, you can kind of make everything look interesting, mm -hmm. and and there, there is certainly some players. Let me put it this way: who've who've, who've done that you know with, with climate change denial yeah. uh and the, and that kind of stuff and so it becomes a really uh a really dangerous subject yeah well it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately is 
and, and I'm sure you can, you know, identify with this is that, you know, um, YouTube being what it is, and you have to kind of like be as bombastic as possible in your headlines and your thumbnails and stuff to get people's attention to, to click on it. Um, I'll put it this way. <clears throat> I have a guy who edits my videos. His name is Nick. And from time to time, I'll make a joke about something being clickbait or that whatever the subject is that I'm talking about, I'll joke about it being clickbait. And he'll make an over-the-top, ridiculous clickbait thumbnail as a joke with all the circles and the arrows and all the, the thumbnail tropes and stuff like that. And on at least three occasions that I can think of, he made that joke thumbnail, and I was like, screw it, I'll use it. So I actually used it as the thumbnail to my video, and those have always performed better using a joke <laughs> thumbnail. And so I, I get irritated because I feel like it you're incentivized. Actually, it's beyond in, incentives. It's, it's almost like you absolutely have to stretch the truth almost to the point of misinformation in your titles and thumbnails for it to perform the way you want it to perform in, in YouTube. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having this debate in my head over how far can you push it before you're just adding to the misinformation in the world? Even if in the video you're, you're, you know, debunking whatever it is that you're talking about or whatever, and you're, you're getting the right information out. Um, most people don't actually click on the video. They just see the title and the thumbnail. And then that little piece of information is now embedded in their heads and they're going to carry that with them, you know? Um, that's a big debate that I have going on. And I don't like that. I have to have this debate. <laughs> I wish it didn't work that way. It just, it just, it just does, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the thing with, uh, with athletes, right? They're right. like hey, in incentivized yeah. to, to push it exactly to the border where, mm -hmm. where it, you know, it becomes kind of illegal or really, really bad. And then you're you're hanging there just 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 before the cliff, basically. Yeah. But uh, you know, YouTube. I find YouTube like really unpredictable. Almost, it's like some of the some of my best ranking videos were on topics that I personally think are terribly boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like for example, my my most watched video is about the question: Does the past still exist? Like, this is about as far away from clickbait as you can possibly be. <laughs> but then, like, three million people have watched it. Uh -huh. And this is just, this is special relativity, standard textbook stuff. There isn't even anything new in it. Uh -huh. So, and I'm still surprised about this. I'm like, I've no idea what's what's so great with the video. I mean, it's not like I'm complaining, but uh, you never know. <laughs> My the my most viewed videos are all on like like really dark topics. The 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 biggest one for a long time was how long a severed head survives after it's been chopped off. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I I saw the thumbnail, but I didn't watch the video. I was kind of I think I don't want to know how they found out. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that one recently got surpassed by a video on the worst uh, uh the worst human experiments of all time. Mm, nice. Yeah which was pretty dark too. So maybe I should just go real dark. Just, just go for it. I don't think anybody really wants that. But. <laughs> um, well, I didn't want to keep you too long. 
but um, I wanted to give you a chance to to talk about your book or like a, a chance to talk about places that I could point people to, to look into your work and everything. Obviously there's your YouTube channel and, and whatnot. Like what, what, what else, what else could you? Yeah, could you... I've, I've just uh, published, uh, it's not quite as recent anymore, but in, in August last year, I published my second book. It's called Existential Physics. Uh, a scientist's guide to the biggest questions in life or something mm -hmm. like this. Um, and this question, like, does the past still exist is one of them, but there's, uh, it's nine chapters and each of them is, is a big question. Like has physics ruled out free will, uh, for example, is human behavior predictable? And then I go down, what, what do we know? Uh, what do we not know? And, and yeah. what's the conclusion? So it's a fun book, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, I, I'm known as the existential angst guy, or some people call me that. So that uh, sounds like right up my alley. It's like a, a book that will will make you question all of existence. Maybe not quite. But... Yeah, well, I, I've, I've <laughs> actually tried to make it, um, you know, optimistic, uplifting <laughs> after I thought that my first book was kind of depressing. Oh, <laughs> Uh, well, cool. I haven't had a chance to, to to look at it yet, but I, it definitely sounds up my alley. I should probably get hand get my hands on one. Um, but uh, I think I think we can wrap it up. I just um, I'm just really glad I got a chance to to talk with you and and meet you finally. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Big thanks to Sabina for coming on. It was a pleasure getting to meet her. And you can find her YouTube channel on YouTube. Her new book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, can be found on Amazon or pretty much everywhere you buy books. I'll put links to her website and social media in the description. Uh, one last little bit of house cleaning business. If you don't know, I do have a new website. It's kind of my new hub for all my stuff, my main channel, TMI, this podcast. Um, you can find all my old interviews there. And as I branch off into more non-YouTube-related stuff, you'll be able to find that stuff there too. Anyway, it's thatjoescott.com. So like if somebody were to say, which Joe Scott? And you say, that Joe Scott. You can also find all the merch around my channels there. Cool t-shirts, mugs, posters, some of it channel branded, some of it just fun that you can wear around. Uh, it helps support the channel and it gives you something cool to wear. So there you go. This episode was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at Answers with Joe pretty much everywhere on the socials. Of course, my YouTube channel is Answers with Joe. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Please do share this if you thought it was interesting and a nice review on whatever podcast player you're using right now really does go a long way. But until next time, thanks, have a good one. Now go out there and start some conversations of your own. Take care.